0: We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Alvin Finkel. Among people from the rest of Canada, Alberta has a reputation for being extremely conservative. Certainly, you don't have to look too hard to find reasons for this reputation. After all, with the exception of the recent one-term NDP government, the province has been governed by right-wing parties consistently since the 1930s, and the oil industry plays a major role in the province's political culture, as do organized Christian conservatives. Yet today's guest argues that Alberta also has a rich history of progressive politics and radical struggle. The Cooperative Commonwealth Federation and later its successor, the NDP, have always had a strong base in the province, And while restrictive legislation limited its growth in some respects, the labor movement has always been present and vibrant. The province saw month-long general strikes in Edmonton and Calgary in 1919, coal field militants in the 20s, and a famous hunger march by workers and farmers in the 1930s or for more recent examples, you can look to the major strike wave that rocked the province in 1986, and to the coalitions of unions and community groups that have actually been surprisingly successful in the last few decades at putting limits on the damage that right-wing provincial governments could do to public services. Alvin Finkel is a history professor at Athabasca University. He's the author of 13 books, most recently Compassion, A Global History of Social Policy, from Red Globe Press. He is also the president of the Alberta Labor History Institute. The organization was, quote, "...founded in 1999 by a group of trade unionists, community activists, archivists, and historians who decided to take the first steps to collect, preserve, and publicize the stories of Alberta's working people and their organizations." With a large dose of volunteer labor, as well as small grants, donations from unions, and their own fundraising, they've kept the institute going strong for two decades. The core of the Institute's work is oral history interviews. They sit down with workers and do in-depth interviews with them about their lives, their work, their unions, and the labor struggles they've been a part of. Over the years, they've in part selected interviewees so as to document key struggles in Alberta's history, and they've tried to talk to a broad spectrum of workers in terms of gender, racial background, union versus non-union, industry, and location within the province. The interviews are video-recorded and later transcribed, and the material is used in many different ways. The transcripts are posted online. They produce short podcasts. They print booklets on various topics. Each year they produce a labor history calendar, which is also one of their main fundraisers. they made video documentaries that are available on YouTube, and in 2012 they published a book about the history of workers and their struggles in Alberta. The main audience for the Institute's work is people active in the labor movement, as well as members of the general public, but Finkel and other scholars who are involved have also used the oral history interviews as the basis for academic work. Finkel's latest book, Compassion, does not draw on this material, but rather is a history of the different ways that societies around the world have cared for vulnerable people. But it connects to the Institute's work, in that struggle by workers and communities has always been central to winning improvements in social policy and social provision in Alberta, in Canada, and around the world. I speak with Finkel about his new book, about the history of workers and their struggles in Alberta, and about the work of the Alberta Labour History Institute.
1: Hi, I'm Alvin Finkel. I'm president of the Alberta Labour History Institute. I have a, a long career as a professor of history at Athabasca University, and I've written 13 books, the most recent of which is Compassion, A Global History of Social Policy. I'm from the north end of Winnipeg. So I think I come by my radicalism naturally. I'm from a working class family. I became involved in political stuff as a student. I edited the Manitoban, the student newspaper at the University of Manitoba. And I was involved in the anti-war movement and in labor support. And so later, as I decided to become an academic, Actually, I'm a, I was a blacklisted journalist, so I went back to university, did a master's and then a PhD in history, and it was kind of natural for me to focus on social struggles in my work. The Alberta Labor History Institute was founded 20 years ago. Its mandate is to record interviews with labor militants and just ordinary working people to discuss major labor events, as well as just working conditions and worker struggles. If you look at our website, what you'll see are transcripts of those interviews and short podcasts from the
0: interviews. How did the Alberta Labour History Institute get started?
1: There's been talk for a number of years about having some kind of organization that looked at Alberta labour and radical history. Because I mean, Alberta has this reputation as being this ultra-conservative province. But those of us who were involved in doing labor history, as well as people who were working for the trade union movement, were aware that that wasn't really true, that in some ways that's an invention of the media and of the kinds of governments that we had been electing in Alberta. But that Alberta, after all, was the place where the Western Labor Conference was held in 1919 that supported the one big union. It's the place where the CCF was founded in 1932. It's a place where you had more elected labor representatives in the 1920s than you did in most places in the country, and had a very radical history in terms of mining. So we were aware of all of these kinds of things, but they were not things that the general public knew. Certainly, most trade unionists didn't know anything about this stuff. So we got the idea that it was necessary to provide a kind of counter-history of Alberta, And one of the things that I think that got us going was that so many of the people who had been involved in earlier labor struggles were getting old and would die without their story being told. So we wanted to be interviewing those people right away and get that kind of material recorded, get that kind of material out there for working people in Alberta to know something about.
0: Who's involved in it? Is it primarily academics or community-based people too?
1: It's a mixture, quite a good mixture. Our very first president was Dave Worland, who is a former president of the Alberta Federation of Labor. And Dave Worland is a rather important person historically in the labor movement because he was the first open member of the Communist Party to become a president of a provincial federation of labor. He was the president of the AFL from 1983 to 1989 and encouraged labor struggles during that period. So he's one example of somebody from the labor movement who was involved from the beginning. Jack Hubbler, who for many years had been the executive director for the Pipefitters, was also involved almost from the beginning. Neil Reimer, who was very active in the labor movement right across the country and was the first leader of the Alberta NDP, was also one of our early members. So we had a lot of people with direct involvement in the labor movement who were part of the organization from the beginning. As well, we had people who were employed within the labor movement who wouldn't necessarily be as well known to the public, plus labor academics like myself.
0: Walk listeners through the process that people from the Institute would go through, from finding people to interview, the interview itself, and on through the processing and publication of material from the interview.
1: We have an oral history committee that sits down and thinks through who it is we want to interview. We try to cover a broad spectrum of workers, both unionized and non-unionized. And we try to take into consideration a balance of genders and of indigenous versus non-indigenous, racialized workers versus white workers. So we come up with topics And we come up with names, and then somebody is deputized to approach the people who we've decided to interview. Then we sit down and talk with the potential interviewee, see what they're willing to talk about. And then we send an interviewer and a videographer to do the interview. We get a transcript done by a person who's qualified to produce those transcripts. And when we go through the interview, choose the things that we think are most salient, and put that into a podcast, and then the whole thing is put online. And we also submit these interviews to the Provincial Archives of Alberta.
0: What kinds of things have the Institute or people associated with it produced based on these interviews?
1: First of all, we often combine these materials in videos. But yes, there are also academic papers that have been done from this work. We've produced seven booklets on topics ranging from the coal mines in Alberta to labor legislation in Alberta. And those booklets are all available on our website as well as in print. And we've produced a book called Working People in Alberta, A History which we released in 2012 in conjunction with the centennial of the Alberta Federation of Labour. But it's far more than a history of the AFL. It's an attempt at looking at the history of working people in Alberta from Indigenous times to the present.
0: I know from my own experience that the kind of work you're talking about is quite labour-intensive. Are you able to find funding for it, or is it largely volunteer-based?
1: It's largely volunteer. The interviewers are not paid, but we do have to pay the videographer. It's somebody who's doing it as semi-volunteer, so it's at a quite reduced rate. We do have to pay printers for our booklets, obviously. We have to pay the transcript person. But most of the work really is done by volunteer labor. We do have grants from the Edmonton Heritage Council and from the Alberta Historic Resources Foundation. And the unions have been generous in supporting us, too. Some unions give us an annual donation, others buy our calendar. That's our main annual fundraiser is we produce a calendar that's more than just a calendar because what it is is a history of certain things that we're highlighting that year. And we sell the calendars at $10 a pop, but of course they're fairly cheap to produce. So that's a major fundraising activity for us.
0: Has it been much of a challenge to ensure that you get interviews with people from outside of the major cities?
1: We do have a branch in Calgary. We've had projects where we are mainly doing the interviews outside of Edmonton. We did have a grant in 2005 from the Federal Heritage Department. That was for the Alberta Centennial that allowed us to go up to Fort McMurray and down to the south of the province and do a fairly large number of interviews, both individual and group. So we do have some balance within the province I think that the Edmonton interviews are probably overrepresented, but, you know, certainly there is a representation from the rest of the province.
0: What are some key elements from the work that the Alberta Labour History Institute has done over the years around the history of workers and the labour movement in Alberta that you think are important, but that people in the rest of the country are not likely to know about?
1: Well, for example, the summer of 1986 in Alberta involved a huge number of strikes that went very much counter to the idea of labor quiescence in Alberta. And we've done a lot of interviews about that. And we held a special workshop on that in 2016 to mark the 30th anniversary. That is something else that we do is we hold events to talk about the kind of research that we've done to show some of the videos that we've produced and have speakers talk about those events. So, yeah, the summer of 1986 may not be known very much in the rest of the country. People do tend to know about the big gainer strike that went on that year, but there were six other major strikes going on at the same time. The involvement of Alberta workers in the general strikes of 1919 is probably not known to many people. People know about the Winnipeg general strike, They are less likely to know that at the same time, the workers in Edmonton and Calgary went out for a month in solidarity with the Winnipeg workers. And the miners in the province shut down the coal mines for about four months for their own reasons. So these are some of the things that people wouldn't know too much about. Another one is Friends of Medicare. We have an important organization in this province that was largely founded by the unions. That was formed in 1979 because there was a sense that the Van conservative government was undermining public medical care with allowing doctors to extra bill, allowing more and more services to not be part of Medicare. So we've done a whole series of interviews with people who have been involved with Friends of Medicare from its founding in 1979 to the present.
0: And what about labour community coalitions to resist government cutbacks and so on? Is there a history of that in Alberta?
1: Absolutely. In fact, it's probably stronger in Alberta than anywhere else in the country that the labour movement feels the need to work very closely with progressive elements across the community. So, for example, the Parkland Institute was founded during the Klein years in the 1990s to do research on issues of public programs and public needs. And then in the early 2000s, Public Interest Alberta was formed as a kind of a lobby group to press for the need to preserve and extend public services. Friends of Medicare, as I've mentioned, is another one of those kinds of organizations. The labor movement is very involved with all of these and works quite closely with them. They don't try to dominate. They try to work with as many civil society groups as possible, that stand for a progressive province, a progressive world.
0: You alluded earlier to the fact that Alberta's conservative reputation isn't necessarily deserved. Where does that reputation come from? And how do both the reality, such as it is, and the myth of it, factor into the challenges that workers and workers' struggles face in the province?
1: Well, we had a social credit government from 1935 until 1971, followed by a not very progressive, progressive conservative government from 1971 all the way until 2015 when the NDP finally formed a one-term government. So, you know, there obviously are a lot of conservative-minded people in the province, although it's important to point out that when Social Credit was first elected in 1935, they weren't elected on a small C conservative platform at all. They sort of morphed over time into a conservative party. It's the oil industry, of course, that produced real conservatism in this province. That, plus the religious conservatism that you find in many of the rural areas, The conservatism was exaggerated politically by the way in which the electoral map was drawn up. The rural areas were vastly overrepresented compared to their population. And so that established a fairly conservative legislature. But you always had a strong PCF and later NDP in the province You had a trade union movement that was very similar to other parts of the country, but you had very anti-labor legislation that made it difficult for them to grow. So I think the conservative reputation came from the fact that we had, you know, under social credit, Bible Bill Aberhart and then Ernest Manning, another radically conservative preacher, and then the oil industry guys from the conservatives. So, sure, there's reasons why people think of this province as conservative, because the people running it are conservative. But there was always protest from below, protest for better labor legislation, for better social legislation, et cetera, et cetera. And with some impact over time, a group like Friends of Medicare can point to some real victories. Most people are aware of Ralph Klein and his efforts to, in a sense, tear apart the social contract in this province to get rid of public Medicare and create what he called the third way. But a lot of people would be surprised at the extent to which he failed, because we had huge, huge protests, including a takeover of the legislative buildings, and Klein felt he could only go so far, even during the period of his most massive cuts from 1993 to 1995. At one point, he was privatizing the laundry services in the hospitals, and the laundry workers in two of the hospitals in Calgary refused to leave, and they had massive support from the public. People did not want the degree of cutting going on that was occurring under Klein, and there was a threat of a general strike. So Klein actually did come to the bargaining table and agreed that the workers could hold on to their jobs for about 18 months anyway, before that privatization would occur, So, you know, it was just a partial victory, but it was a victory of sorts.
0: Who engages and how with the material that the Alberta Labor History Institute produces?
1: Certainly, our calendars are handed out to union activists by the unions that purchase them, and our booklets as well are available free. We go to conventions of many of the unions and of the uh, Alberta Federation of Labor, and of Public Interest Alberta and the Parkland. So, you know, it's the labor activists who see these materials and know about them. In some cases, unions have had sessions in their union halls about us. We do quite a lot of work, for example, with the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees, which is the largest union in the province, 90,000 members. They have educationals, and we're invited to put on many of those.
0: Tell me more about the sorts of public events that the Institute itself has organized to popularize and circulate some of this history.
1: In the early period, we would have an annual summer workshop where we would highlight particular events. One of the early ones we did was on the 1932 Hunger March, because there were some people who had been part of that when they were very young who were still alive at that time. Later, we had a few more formal conferences So for example, for the 2012 centennial of the Alberta Federation of Labor, we held a three-day conference that looked at the history of Alberta labor. We had a follow-up conference a couple of years later. Then we've had the workshop on the summer of 86. In most of our public events, we've had special videos that are then accompanied by singing by Maria Dunn, who's an Alberta folk singer with a strong connection to the labor movement. So we've been able to get fairly good audiences out to such events that focus on labor's past.
0: In light of 20 years of doing this work via the Institute, go back to your sense of why this is important work to be doing and why it's important that the Institute exists in Alberta.
1: It's an important organization because you have students going through their education in this province getting almost no sense of the Labour movement. From the formal curriculum, So we offer materials that progressive-minded teachers can use to supplement whatever is being taught and give another point of view. Similarly, in terms of university students, college students, when they're doing assignments, the ones who are interested in working people, we provide an important source on that. And similarly for the unions themselves, that sense that they're part of something, that they're not freaks, is something that we help to sustain. I mean, when we go to the union conventions, we are often told by workers who are in attendance that, you know, they read some of our booklets or they read our book or they looked at some of our interviews and that they learned so much about, you know, the movement that they're part of.
0: What are some of the ways over the years that interviews and other work done in the context of the Institute have filtered into your own individual scholarly work?
1: It's been fairly important in my scholarly work I edited and wrote several chapters for our labor history book. This year, I wrote a booklet on 1919 in Alberta, the labor struggles of 1919 and how they fit with the national picture and with the international picture. I think it also played a role in my deciding to write the book Compassion because although Compassion is a book that's dealing with not just labor history. It's dealing with the history of social policy, social struggles to get government programs of benefit to ordinary people. But the labor movement has played the biggest role since the 1800s in winning those kinds of battles. So after studying it closely in terms of Alberta, of course, that strengthened my interest in knowing how that worked across the
0: world. Give listeners an overview of Compassion and of what you were trying to accomplish with the book.
1: Compassion, as one of the reviewers put it, is a comprehensive review of global welfare provision. The way he put it was, who knew it was possible to write an epic panorama of the welfare state? Basically, what the book does is it looks at how different societies from the earliest human societies have attempted or not attempted to look after the most vulnerable people and why. Looking at how different societies are structured and the results from that of what kinds of social policies they've come up with so that those who are disabled or raising children or aged or for whatever reason are not able to completely look after themselves are helped by the society as a whole. And it's a global book, because I think too often we think of social provision and, uh, you know, the possibilities for social provision solely in terms of developed capitalist societies. But it's important to look at the socialist world. It's important to look at the third world. There's all kinds of examples out there that most people know nothing about. I mean, one example is the state of Kerala in India, which has as many people as Canada. And although it's a fairly poor society, they have very sophisticated social provision, largely led by elected communist governments. So I think it's a book that tries to look at how different societies have managed to provide greater equality and greater social guarantees. And therefore, it kind of opens questions about what the future holds. I mean, why are we allowing in Canada and in many countries neoliberalism, which is attacking the gains that working people have made over 200 years? The interplay between social struggles from below and the actions of those who are the ruling classes is always important to look at because, of course, the big capitalists and other powerful people don't want to share very much. They're not compassionate people, but they recognize a need for some social stability if they're going to last in power, if they're going to be able to hold on to at least some of their economic and political power. So the struggles from below play an extremely important role, even when there's no revolution, even when there's no change in government. But of course, revolutions and changes in government do play an important role, too. So in the book Compassion, I look very closely at what went on in the Soviet Union and what went on in China before they decided to take a capitalist road. And, you know, I'm not an apologist for either of those societies. But the kind of cartoon stuff that people know about or think they know is mostly wrong. So it's important for people to see that social struggles, which include you know the creation of post-capitalist societies, although they may not have lasted as post-capitalist, have produced various kinds of important changes. and then to look at why those societies in some ways crumbled.
0: What are some of the key moments specifically in the Canadian context in which struggle by workers and others has been central to improving social policy and social provision?
1: Well, I think in particular, during the Second World War, workers unionized in large numbers, and the unions made very clear And polling also made clear to the ruling class that we were not going to go back to what we had in the Great Depression, where workers had no job at all, or if they did have jobs, had no stability. And so programs like unemployment insurance and old age pensions and later on Medicare come very much from the struggles of the trade union movement. I mean, when the Hall Commission was set up by the Diefenbaker government to study medical care in Canada, there were really only two groups that played a big role in convincing that fairly conservative commission that we needed a universal medical care program. One was social workers who talked about how the poor were getting very poor medical care, but the other group were the trade unions because the big corporations were saying, well, we've sat down with the unions and they've negotiated various private insurance arrangements. And the unions came before the whole Commission and said, the kind of coverage for medical care that we have is so pockmarked that we would, in a minute, get rid of that for a public program. So I think that the trade union movement has played this really strong role as an advocate for social insurance programs. That is, apart from pushing for higher wages for their own members, they've pushed for higher social wages for all Canadians.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Alvin Finkel about the Alberta Labour History Institute. To learn more about their work, go to albertalaborhistory.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.